Good evening. It's good to see everyone here tonight. We are going to have questions and answers tonight. I've got about 14 questions prepared, and I don't think we'll get to 14, but we'll see how far we can get. I'll keep an eye on the clock and just see how it goes. I was told that we are having some problems with the equipment, and so we are not going to be streaming online tonight, and that the, the sermon from this morning also uh, was not recorded. I think the computer actually died during the sermon, and so that one did not get posted, and uh, that's unfortunate, but uh, you know, that's how it always used to be. We can still worship, and everything will be good. I appreciate those who have turned in questions. I have uh, maybe two or three questions left, and so if we're going to do it next week I'll, or next month, I'll need some more questions turned in. All right, let's go. Question number one. All right, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, is God saying that it's wrong to grieve over someone who is not a true believer? And is it okay for Christians who are true believers to grieve? Well, let's read it. I've got it up here on the, uh, the board, so the, on the overhead so we can see it. It says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now let's break this down. He says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That is, Paul is saying to the Christians in Thessalonica, I don't want you to have a misunderstanding about those who have died. Those who have fallen asleep are those Christians that had died. He said, I don't want you to misunderstand that. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, who are those who have no hope? He's talking about non-Christians. And so when a non-Christian loses a loved one, they don't have the hope of reunion in the future. It's going to be a permanent separation. I'm not going to see them again. And so he says the sorrow of a Christian should be different from that kind of a sorrow. It's not going to be the same because Christians are going to see their loved ones again. If you're a Christian and they're a Christian, the day is going to come that you're going to see them again. And so there's a separation, but it's just temporary. And that certainly makes the burden easier. And that's the difference here. Now, he's not saying that we should not sorrow at all. I remember John eleven thirty five 35, that when Lazarus died, Jesus wept. And how could you help but be sad? How could you help but sorrow over a loved one who has died? In fact, verse 18 of this chapter says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The fact that we need to be comforted seems to imply that we are sorrowing. Now, I think the question is asking, should we grieve over the death of someone who is not a Christian? Of course we should. I mean, you still love that person. You're still going to miss that person. You know, 1 Peter 3 came to my mind where it describes a Christian woman who is married to a non-Christian man, and she still has all the same duties to her husband, the same responsibilities. She is to love him and honor him and treat him as a husband. And so she is still going to feel that loss. As a matter of fact, I thought she's probably going to grieve more when he dies because of the fact that she does not have that hope that is mentioned here. So, interesting question. Here's number two. If individuals have a conflict with each other, and one of the parties goes forward during the invitation and writes a generic statement like, I've thought and done and said things that I shouldn't have, please forgive me. 
Is the offended party obligated to forgive? Why or why not? Listen to what I'm about to say. A public statement will never suffice for a private sin. A public statement will not suffice for a private sin, and a private statement will not suffice for a public sin. Now, let me give you an example of this. You know, maybe my wife and I have a fight, and it would be easier for me to come forward and just make some generic statement and say something like, you know, I've, I've said some things that I shouldn't, please forgive me. That might be easier than to go to her and work it out. But that's not right. The principle in the Bible is that you confess your sin to those that are affected, those who know about it, as widely as it is known. Now, where do we see that? Matthew 18, 15 says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And so, if it's a private sin, I'm supposed to go alone, is what he says. Not get up and make a public statement. He says, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. And so, if it's a private sin, I deal with him privately, if that is possible. Now, if it's a public sin, I'm not going to try to deal with that privately. And so, if I go out and I am drunk and disorderly and I get arrested and it's known all over Cookville, I'm not going to go home and just repent to my wife and uh, think that that's going to be sufficient. I'm going to deal with the sin as widely as it is known. All right, question number three. Would red grape juice or white grape juice be acceptable for the fruit of the vine? If so, why do we only use purple grape juice? You know, the Bible simply says fruit of the vine, and the Greek word that is translated as vine in English is a word that means vine, or most of the time in the New Testament, it means grapevine. In fact, in virtually every instance in the Bible when the term is used, it refers to a grapevine. Now, the reason that's interesting is because there are other fruits that grow on a vine. Someone might say, well, you know, watermelons grow on a vine. Could we use, you know, watermelon juice or watermelon um, a wine? And the answer to that would be, though it would be a fruit of the vine, it doesn't line up with the word that is normally used in the New Testament. Now, whether it is red grape juice, white grape juice, or purple grape juice, uh, the Bible doesn't specify, and so I think any of those would be fine in light of that. I actually have used others in other places, particularly when I have been overseas. We've had uh, white grape juice, and so any of them meet the description that is laid out in the Bible. I think it's just more common for us in America to use uh, purple. Number four, was Christianity ever referred to as the way in the New Testament? If a first century Christian were asked, what is your religion, do you think he might have answered, I'm in the way. Would that be appropriate today? Yes, Christianity was referred to as the way in the New Testament. In fact, we just covered this in Acts class recently. It's in Acts chapter 9 and verse 2 where the apostle Paul went to the, uh, the synagogue and he asked the high priest to give him letters to go to Damascus so that if he could find any who were of the way, he could bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, in the first century, if someone said, I am a part of the way, then there's a chance they might have known what you were talking about. In fact, we sing about that, don't we? I'm in the way, the bright and shining way. I'm in the glory land way. I think the problem today would be if we decided we're going to call ourselves the way, that would sound strange to people. They wouldn't know what in the world we were talking about. They would wonder what 
peculiar group we were becoming a part of. In fact, they would probably think we were trying to distance ourselves from the Lord's Church, from the Church of Christ in, in some way. Uh, but you know, if we decided we were going to change our name to the Willow Avenue Church of God, that would be a scriptural thing to do, but I don't think it would be a wise thing to do because it would confuse people with the denomination that goes by that name. And so it wouldn't be a good thing to do. You know, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12 came to my mind where the Apostle Paul said, all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. That is to say, there are some things that are scripturally okay to do, but they're not expedient to do. And I think that would fall into that category. We could call ourselves the church of God, but it wouldn't be expedient. It, it, it wouldn't show wisdom to do that. And I think going by the term, the way, would probably fall into that category as well. All right, number five. Are the tongues spoken of in Acts chapter 2 the same as those in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? It seems that in Acts chapter 2, the people heard what was spoken in their own language, but in 1 Corinthians, there was to be an interpreter. Of course, Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost. The Bible says when the day of Pentecost was fully come, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts 2 and verse 7 says about the people who were present, then they were all amazed and they marveled and said to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? That is, the twelve apostles were Galileans. And how is it that we each hear in our own language in which we were born? And so the people who are there in Jerusalem say, we're hearing in our own language. Now, in 1 Corinthians, we are told that they were not to speak in a tongue unless there is an interpreter. Now, are these two different things? No, I don't think they're two different things. I think they're the same thing. In Acts chapter 10, when the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius' household, the Bible says they began to speak in tongues. And Peter says that they received the like gift that the apostles had received on the day of Pentecost. So whatever it was in Acts 10 is the same in Acts 2. I think it's the same in Acts 8. It's the same in Acts 19. Throughout the New Testament, I don't see any distinction being made in different types of tongues. A tongue was a language. It just means they had a miraculous ability to speak a language that they had not studied. And so I think this question is really this. Was it a miracle of speaking or was it a miracle of hearing? And it seems to be a miracle of speaking. There is no record. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, there's a list of nine different spiritual gifts. Apparently, all the different spiritual gifts are listed, and there is not a spiritual gift of hearing. And so this seems to be relating to the uh, speaking. Now, I've always thought about it this way. Is it possible that on the day of Pentecost, as the apostles, they said, all these who speak are Galileans. We only have Peter's uh, message recorded, but it appears that all 12 of them were speaking. Could it be that each of them was speaking in a different language? And so there would have been 12 different languages represented. Could it be that in light of that, all of the people had some language in their uh, native territory that was being represented? Could it be that each one of them spoke in one language for a bit and spoke in another language? And so you'd have had 24 different languages. And so I tend to think, I've always thought that it was more along those lines, uh, but the Bible really doesn't uh, 
really uh, spice and dice that for us and give us the details there. Number six, who baptized John the Baptist? I do not know. The Bible does not say. You know, I have never thought of that question in my whole life. I get questions and I think, it is amazing that I have never even had this cross my mind. Now, I assume that John was baptized because even Jesus said he needed to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness in Matthew chapter 3. And so if Jesus needed to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, I certainly think John needed to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And Luke chapter 7 and verse 30 says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves because they were not baptized of John. And so by rejecting the baptism of John, they were rejecting the counsel of God. So I don't see how John could have not been baptized because he would not have been fulfilling all righteousness. He would have been rejecting the counsel of God. So who baptized John? I don't know. Was this something... Uh, the Lord did? Was this something one of his disciples did? I don't know. The Bible just doesn't give us the answer to that question. Number seven, what is the world that we are commanded not to love in 1 John 2, 15 through 17? Does it refer specifically to the sinful things of the world, or could all secular things potentially fall into the categories listed in, verses, in verse 16? How much admiration can a person have for secular things, such as movies and books and uh, music and sports and video games, etc., without it becoming a form of idolatry? Well, 1 John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so what is the world there? It's not the people of the world. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. It's not the planet. God made the world in that sense. The word here for world is the Greek word cosmos. It is a word that means a system or an order of things. It's a way of doing things. And the next verse explains what that system is. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. So he's talking about sinful things of this world. You know, we use the term sometimes a, a worldly person. And by that, we mean a person who engages in things in this world that are not right things. We're not supposed to be worldly kind of people in that sense. Now, of course, any of these things taken to an extreme could be wrong. You know, you could get to the point, he lists the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Think about that. Lust of the eyes, you could look at a, a pickup truck and you could love it. See, I picked what I like. So you could look at a pickup truck and you could love it to the point that you violate this passage, right? A person could love exercise to the point that he would violate this. You know, food is necessary and it's good, but eating too much food could become wrong, uh, except for bacon. I think you need as much bacon as you want, but, uh, but anything can be overdone and it can become an idol or a god to you. Anything that you can have pride over, any, you know, getting an education is good, but a person could get to the point that their education is prideful for them and they violate this passage. The lust of the flesh things that are fine. Um, the sexual relationship within the bonds of marriage is okay, but a person can step outside of that and it becomes sinful. 
the lust of the eyes. And so all of these things that could be right in and of themselves, when you step outside of the right, then they can fall into this category. So uh, what about movies? What about sports and video games? Sure, they could fall into that. In fact, I knew an elder in another state on one occasion, and he loved football. He told me that he had not missed his home college team, a home game, in years. And he lived a long way from there. So that meant during football season, he drove hours to get there. It was too far for him to get back. Now, where he was, they only had two elders. So that meant that during college football season, most Sundays, he wasn't there. Now, he was an elder. He was falling behind on what was going on. It was leaving one elder to do all of the business. Could you get into a point like that where sports becomes an idol or something that could violate this passage? Sure, all of us have to check ourselves all the time to make sure that we don't fall into this because it is easy, easy to do. All right, number eight. Does James 5.16 indicate that all sins that we are aware of need to be confessed to a fellow Christian? James 5.16 says, Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Does this mean we need to confess all of our sins to a fellow Christian? No. And aren't you thankful for that? Imagine if you had to confess every one of your sins to another Christian. We would have someone that we would be talking to. All. In fact, we'd have like a priest system if that's what uh, was going on. So what does he mean that we're to confess our sins one to another? I think he's describing here the situation like what we have when a person can come forward at the invitation. There comes a time when a Christian wants to reach out to his brethren and he wants to inform them of a sin, tell them about a sin, and ask for their prayers. I think about Acts chapter 8 when Simon the sorcerer has sinned and he says to Peter, pray for me that uh, perhaps the thought of my heart may be forgiven me. And so there are times that I'm struggling with temptation. I ask my brethren to pray for me. There are times that I've sinned. I ask my brethren to pray for me. And there may be times that because I have sinned publicly or even towards someone else, I will ask them to pray for me. Those are the type of things being described here. Certainly not that a Christian needs to um, confess every sin that he has committed. Number nine, I'm going through these fast. We might get all 14 tonight, actually. Number nine, what is the right age for a child to be baptized? 14. I'm just kidding. The Bible does not say. And it's for obvious reasons the Bible doesn't say. Because think about this. If we were going to baptize people at age 12, some people would be ready at age 12, and some people absolutely would not. And so if we set age 12 and we started baptizing uh, young people at age 12, we would have a lot of people baptized who weren't ready to be baptized. We use the term sometimes, we, we say the age of accountability. And by that, what we mean is a person has reached a point of mental maturity in which they are accountable to God for their actions. That is, they are able to understand right and wrong. They're able to understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. See, the plan of salvation itself tells us something about this. Because to be saved, a person has to understand the death, burial, and resurrection. 
They have to understand the purpose of baptism. They have to understand the concept of the one church. And so when a person reaches the state of mental maturity that they're able to understand these things, then that's the point at which a person has reached the age of accountability. Now, what is that age? I don't know. It's going to vary wildly. I would say probably somewhere between 9 and 14, somewhere in there for most people. But I hate to even say that because some might be younger, some might be older. But somewhere in that age bracket is is what is likely for most people. Number 10, what is christening and is it wrong for babies to be christened or baptized? You know, sometimes people use those terms interchangeably, baptizing and christening, but uh, they're not the same thing, actually. Christening refers to the naming ceremony. In fact, the word christen means to give a name, whereas baptism is one of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. Now, the reason they get used interchangeably is they usually happen at the same time. When they are going to baptize the baby, it's usually at that time that they christen them or they will give them their, quote, Christian name. The Catholic Church baptizes babies because they believe that they are born in what they call original sin. Original sin is defined by them as sin that is inherited from Adam. It's been passed down through every generation to Adam. In the Bible, you will not find the word christening. In the Bible, you will not find babies being baptized. And so if you're doing that, it came from somewhere other than the Bible. It came from someplace other than from God. Babies do not sin, and they don't need to be baptized. And so if a baby dies or a woman miscarries her baby, that baby's going to go to paradise because that baby is sinless. In Matthew 18, Jesus brought a child and set him down in the midst of his disciples, and he said, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, a child is not a sinner, but rather a child is the perfect model of what we should become like, that is innocent and pure. And so christening and baptizing babies is something that is unscriptural. It has come along through a denominational and Catholic ideas and is not biblical. Number 11, do suicide victims go to heaven? You know, that depends on several things. Uh, first, to go to heaven, you've got to be a Christian. You've got to be a faithful Christian. Secondly, is this person accountable? You know, there are certainly situations where a Christian might be out of his mind, whether it's due to medication, whether it's due to a disease, you know, Alzheimer's. There might be mental problems involved that make them not accountable. And if a faithful Christian were to commit suicide, but he's not in his right mind, I don't think that's going to affect his eternity because if he does something that's beyond his control and he can't help it, that's like an unaccountable person doing that. But you know, sometimes I've heard people say this. They've said, anybody who commits suicide is not in his right mind. I don't believe that's true. Was Judas insane? Was Judas in his right mind? Apparently he was because Jesus said he went out and he killed himself. And in Acts chapter 1, we're told that Judas was lost. Was Saul of the Old Testament, so King Saul, he committed suicide. Was he in his right mind? How about Abimelech? You've got examples. I think there's seven different suicides in the Bible. And what you see is there are examples of people who commit suicide. 
and are certainly in their right mind. But there are other examples of people who, because of uh, health problems or mental problems, maybe a person's been a faithful Christian their entire lives, and they get to the point and they've got uh, mental incapacity, and they do something they would have never done before. I would put that person in the category of a person who's not mentally accountable. And so I'm always very reluctant to uh, speak on something like this. This is something that um, the Lord knows their situation. Number 12. The church, se church seems to be cut and dried. Prayer, two songs, prayer, Lord's Supper, preaching, song, dismissed, routine. Never see anyone shed a tear. Seems there is no praising the Lord, or it's not a spiritual service. Lift up your hands, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8. Uh, I am not completely sure I understand the question, and so if I don't answer it by, I don't know who asked it either, so if I don't answer it the way you had in mind, if you'll say something to me, I'll work on it uh, some more, but there is so much that comes to my mind from this question. First, there is a trend in the religious world today to make worship an outward emotional experience that's fun and exciting and, you know, hand-waving waving our arms in the, in the air. The push is to make worship appealing to us. That's the reason for instruments, to make it interesting to us, not to God. God hasn't asked for that. It's the reason for praise teams, to make it better for us. God hasn't asked for that. What we ought to be concerned about is what is pleasing to God, not what is pleasing to us. Here's the catchphrase we need to remember. God is the audience. We are not the audience. We are all participants. God is the audience. And that being the case, we should be concerned about offering God, number one, what He has asked for. Number two, we should focus on our hearts. Not the outward show, but our hearts. Ephesians 5.19 says, making melody in our hearts. Colossians 3.16 says, with grace in your hearts. And uh, the question cites uh, 1 Timothy 2, 8. Uh, let me read that to you. It says, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Uh, over the years, I've sometimes heard people use this verse to justify or even to suggest that we should be waving our hands during services. And they say, well, you know, 1 Timothy 2, 8. That is not what 1 Timothy 2, 8 is talking about. In 1 Timothy 2.8, when he says, I would that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, it was a common prayer posture for the Jews that when they would pray, they would hold their hands out and they would look to heaven and they would pray. And so the emphasis is this, when you pray, let it be lifting up holy hands. Now today, we don't use that prayer posture. We would be more likely to say, when you're on your knees. In fact, I don't guess we even much do that, but we bow our heads, don't we? And so bowing our heads would be our common prayer posture. So we might say something like, um, with um, holy heads bowed to the Lord. I believe the emphasis here is on the word holy. That is lifting up holy hands to the Lord. And so when you pray in the common prayer posture, make sure it is with holy hands. This has nothing to do with waving our arms back and forth during the singing or something that's going to get into the emotional. I don't know anything that would indicate that uh, that sort of thing was done 
in the uh, New Testament. Now, with regard to the order of the routine, it mentions here uh, a prayer, two songs, prayer, Lord's Supper, preaching, song, dismissed. Um, I don't see anything wrong with changing the order. In fact, I kind of like it when the order is changed sometime. I think we do that so that things can be done decently and in order, and we know the structure, and it helps things go orderly. But uh, changing up the order, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But we need to be careful that we stay focused on what God wants and what God asks for, and that we don't get into outward emotional show, and that is things that are pleasing men and uh, theatrical more than what God has asked for. And that's a hard thing in the society in which we live not to do that. Number 13, is it wrong to smoke cigarettes? Uh, yes, I think that it's wrong to smoke cigarettes, but I don't believe for the same reason that it's wrong to drink alcohol. The Bible specifically states that drinking alcohol is wrong. It addresses it directly. Smoking, however, is taught against implicitly. And by that, I mean in principle. You know, we have learned that smoking is extremely harmful to the body, that even secondhand smoke is harmful to those around us. And so I believe first and foremost, this is a stewardship of your body issue. It's, an, it's, an, it's even an addiction issue. You know, in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12, Paul says, I will not be brought under the power of any. I think he's talking about addictions there. I don't use a verse that sometimes people do, and that's 1 Corinthians six nineteen, where it says, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, because I believe that is talking about the Holy Spirit dwelling in the Corinthians in a miraculous way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says they had the miraculous indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about that. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about the miraculous indwelling and the worship all through 1 Corinthians. And so when in chapter 6, when he says, don't you know that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your bodies? I think he's talking about in the miraculous way. Now, I'm not going to spend the rest of my time talking about um, stats on cigarettes tonight, but, but let me just mention a couple of things. You know, the dangers of cigarettes are very well documented. Half, I read that half of lifetime smokers die from cigarettes. Half of them will die middle-aged. And younger people, three out of four deaths from heart disease are due to smoking. Men who smoke are 10 times more likely to die from lung cancer than non-smokers. Now, Smokers will always come back and they'll say, well, you know, the same thing is true for Snickers bars. And, you know, I, I doubt that is true. Uh, I have never heard that men who eat Snickers bars are 10 times more likely to die from Snickers bars or that half of Snickers eaters are going to die from it. But, you know, if it were true that Snickers fell into this same category, then I think we should avoid Snickers because you've got a stewardship principle. Now, with all of that said... I don't really believe that stewardship is the primary reason. I believe the primary reason that we should not smoke, it relates to our influence and the way people are going to view me as a Christian. You know, a graphic example of this would be, what if all of our teenagers wanted to start smoking? What group would that put them in? When they go to school, who smokes? What kind of people is it that are typically the smokers? You know, in our day and age, 
Smoking is thought of as something that is dirty, it's wrong, it would be extremely difficult, it'd be extremely detrimental to my, to my uh, reputation and my influence and, and to the church. You know, I was watching Andy Griffith one night, and uh, I love the Andy Griffith show. We raised our kids watching Andy Griffith, and in this particular episode, he's standing on the porch, he's smoking a cigarette. I don't think that smoking had the same connotations in the 1960s that it does today. We didn't know as much then as we do about the harmful effects today. So if someone had asked the same question in the 50s or the 60s, the answer might have been different. But, you know, some things change with culture. You know, in Corinth in the first century, for a woman not to wear her veil to services, that would have been rebellion. And so it would have been wrong not to have done that. A Christian woman wanted to be respectful, so she needed to wear her veil. Today, it doesn't mean that. And so today, the influence, the reputation that it puts upon a Christian, if he's smoking, would put him into a category that this is something a Christian should not do. All right, let's see. I think I've got time to do, I'll do this last one and we will stop there. On what day of the week was Jesus crucified? If I were to ask this question to most people in the world, they would say, that's easy. Everybody knows Jesus was crucified on Friday. In fact, just a few weeks ago, the world celebrated what was called Good Friday. It was supposed to be the day that Jesus was crucified. The fact of the matter is, the Bible does not say which day of the week Jesus was crucified. What the Bible says is this. Matthew 12 and verse 40 says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Mark 16, 9 says that he rose early on the first day of the week. And so you would think that this would be easy to do. You just count backwards three days. The confusion is if you do the math, you have Jesus crucified on Friday. He's placed in the tomb Friday evening. And so you've got Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, and then Sunday. And so you don't have three days and three nights. What you have is one full day, parts of two days, and then two full nights. And so it doesn't add up. Now, somebody says, well, Don, the confusion is because the Jews didn't count time the same way that we do. They started a day in the evening, and they ran until the next evening. But that doesn't fix the problem. It just shifts it by a half a day. And so when I started studying this, what I learned is people have debated this literally for centuries. Most people believe and most people argue that Jesus was crucified on Friday, stating that the Jews viewed any part of a day as a day and a night. And so since Jesus was in the grave part of Friday, all of Saturday, part of Sunday, he would have been considered to have been in the grave for three days. Other people argue that Jesus was crucified on Thursday. They believe that that fixes some of these problems. My problem with that view is that Mark 15, 42 says that Jesus was crucified the day before the Sabbath, and Friday wasn't the Sabbath. And so a Thursday crucifixion doesn't make any sense to me. Still, other people argue that Jesus was crucified on Wednesday. They argued that there were actually two Sabbaths the week of the crucifixion. There was the regular one that took place on Saturday, and there was a second one that was the seventh annual Sabbath listed in Leviticus 
chapter 23. And I looked, and it would have fallen on that week. And so they believe that eliminates the contradiction about the Sabbath. This Sabbath, they say, is the feast of the Passover. And so they say this, Jesus ate the Lord's Supper on what we would consider Tuesday night. It would have been Wednesday by the Jews' method of counting. The next day, Jesus was crucified. That still would have been the Passover, according to Leviticus 23. He was buried on what we would call Wednesday, Thursday to the Jews. And then he was in the tomb three days and three full nights. And then they would say that sometime after sundown on what we would call Saturday, the Jews would call Sunday, Jesus arose. And then when they came to the tomb the next morning, it was empty. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. You know why it doesn't matter? Because if it mattered, the Bible would have told us. But the Lord hasn't told us. What matters is that Jesus was crucifying. He was resurrected on the first day of the week. And that's what matters to us. And it is because of that that we have the hope of salvation that we have celebrated today. Thank you so very much for the questions. Please keep them coming. I appreciate and enjoy doing them so very much. We always, at the end of each service, like to extend the Lord's invitation in case there's someone here tonight who needs to respond. If you are here and you're not a Christian and you want to be baptized tonight, the Bible teaches to obey the gospel. You need to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. If we can help you with that tonight, you have opportunity. If you're a member of the church and you need to make a public confession and ask for the prayers of your brethren, as we alluded to in the lesson tonight, we would be happy to do that. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, won't you come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.